All right. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 this evening. Luke chapter 7. We are teaching uh, verse by verse, of course. And then we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verses 70, uh, 76, verses 36 to 83. And so I want to read from verse 36 all the way down to the end of chapter uh, 7, verse 50, and then the first three verses of chapter 8. And then we'll pray again, and then we'll get into it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And kissing her feet, and kissed his feet, and, and appointed, anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee had who he had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know, uh, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, but from the time I came in, she, had not she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among them, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went, out through, went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, uh, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And Father, we pray that as we get into this together, that Lord, you would help us to understand this truth that he who's forgiven much loves much. That Lord, we would have a fresh understanding of how much we've been forgiven and how freely you forgive. And that would transform us into the people that want to love you with our hearts and our lives, Lord. Please do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. amen. Right on. So th th this section is interesting because we have here a really familiar story. Many of us remember this story. Oh yeah, I think this sounds familiar when this woman uh, washes Jesus' feet with her tears and what can happen is we can mix up this story with another story in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we, we hear about this woman, Mary of Bethany, 
who anointed the Lord's feet with uh, this, uh, from this uh, oil from an alabaster flask, wiped her, uh, her, uh, his feet with her hair. And Jesus had said, she's done this to prepare me for my burial. And that took place right before Jesus was arrested and crucified. Now, this is a different series, a different section, a different story. And the reason we know that is, in John chapter 12, it names Mary of Bethany. And of course, Mary was sister to Martha and Lazarus, who eventually would, would die and be res resuscitated by Jesus. And, and, and these people were God-fearing people. These were people that were faithful Jews who then saw Jesus as Messiah. And what's interesting is this story that we were reading in Luke's gospel took place probably two years before. At, at, at a time when Jesus was just beginning his ministry. His ministry was just about to take off. And this woman, we, we plainly, Luke makes it clear to us, she's what they call a sinner. And, and now, we're all sinners. I hope we understand that. But this is a situation where she had the reputation of a sinner. I mean, people thought of her, and they thought, sinner, a woman of the city. And so what we have really, if you compare these two accounts, is a situation where the sinful woman, this woman who has a reputation for being sinful, worships Jesus in such a way that years later, a godly woman says, I want to worship in the same way. That's important. Now, what I want to do is, normally, of course, you guys know, we would kind of work through verse by verse by verse. But today, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to look at these characters. This is why I kind of read the text all the way through. I want to look at Simon this Pharisee. Then I want to look at this, quote unquote, sinful woman. And then I want to talk about the characters that are mentioned in chapter 8, the first part. And I want to do this because what we want to see today is what I believe the whole reason this is, Luke has this uh, in his gospel, is I want us to see and understand the power of forgiveness. What happens when we experience God's forgiveness for ourselves? And first we've got to start off with some bad news because the thing about forgiveness is it does not benefit those who are blind to their own sin. And this is what we see in Simon the Pharisee. Now, I, I should say this too, in case you don't know, a Pharisee was a religious leader in the first century, and a Pharisee was someone who had the reputation of being a spiritual giant. Someone, they were like the, the, the spiritual Olympic athletes of their day. They were the people that people looked up to and thought, these guys know how to follow God. They're the kind of people we should emulate. Just the polar opposite of the sinful woman. But this uh, Simon, the Pharisee, we see in verse 36, he asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he ate with him. Now, now from, from our 21st century perspective, the idea that Jesus would eat for, with sinners, we think, well, yeah, that makes sense. The fact that Jesus eats with poor people or, or broken people, we think, yeah, that's the Jesus that we, we know of. That makes sense to us. Yet that was scandalous in that time. But for Jesus to eat with a religious hypocrite, like a Pharisee, that seems kind of scandalous to us. But really, in that day, it was just the opposite. For Jesus to eat with like poor people or, or people that were known to be sinful or whoever, that would have been scandalous. Where eating with a Pharisee was nice. Now, here's the thing I want us to recognize is that when Simon invites Jesus to eat, Jesus says yes, even though Jesus is fully aware of the kind of man he is. He says yes. He wants to be with this person. What's interesting about this, or important about this to me, is, is the fact that, that here we have Simon, and he's curious about Jesus at least. He, he sees him as, as an up-and-coming teacher, a rabbi. And so he wants to know something about him. But 
he doesn't see, we'll see in the context, he doesn't actually believe in Jesus. He has a, maybe a respect for who he is, a respect for his ministry, a respect for his teaching, but he doesn't actually believe in him. And it reminds me of what the scripture says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. It says this, For this good news that God had prepared this rest, that's a rest for his people, has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did, not, uh, it did them no good because they did not share the faith of those who listened to God, for only we who believe can enter his rest. And what the author of Hebrews is saying there, he's just wanting to make sure that the reader understands just because we hear good news and we think, well, that sounds kind of nice, or just because we, we maybe acknowledge Jesus' teaching and this idea of rest or peace that he's offering and we think that might be a good idea, doesn't mean we're exercising real faith. And actually, even if we think that's a good idea, if we don't put our faith in who Jesus is, it's not going to benefit us. And this is kind of where Simon finds himself. But Jesus doesn't leave him there. Here's what we see Jesus doing, okay? We see Jesus provoking Simon with a parable. If you drop down to verse 39. It says, now when the Pharisee, that's Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw this, that is, saw what the woman uh, had done, he thinks to himself, if this guy was a prophet, he wouldn't let the sinful woman touch him. Now, of course, Simon doesn't say this out loud. He's just thinking these thoughts. But Jesus knows his thoughts. Just like God knows our thoughts, Jesus knows his thoughts, right? And so Jesus says, says to him in, in answering the, what he thinks is a secret thought, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so Simon says, say it. And Jesus begins to tell him this parable of these two debtors. Let's look at it again. There's two debtors. A certain moneylender has two people that owe him money, one 500 denarii, that's about uh, 18 months worth of wages, and the other 50 denarii would be about two months worth of wages. And when they could not pay, what happens? He says, he cancels the, death of the, the debt of them both. So, so, uh, so I don't know about you, but imagine you have, let's say if you have a mortgage that it only has a year left, and the bank calls you up and says, you know what, you've been so faithful, we decided we're going to cancel your mortgage. You don't have any more debt than the mortgage. You'd be going, phew, good news, that's great, let's go out for dinner. But then imagine if you just mortgaged your house for the first time. You're a first-time buyer. you got 30 years to pay off. And the same bank calls you up and says, your house is paid off. You don't have to pay for this mortgage. That would be a little bit more than let's go out to dinner. You would probably have tears of joy. You probably, you probably think it's too good to be true. So Jesus tells this parable, and he asks a question. He says, now which of them will love him more? That is, will love the the moneylender that forgave the debt. And Simon answers wisely, logically, well, I suppose he'll cancel the one, or I suppose uh, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, you've judged rightly. And so what Jesus is doing is trying to provoke his thinking. Okay, if you're forgiven a lot, what do you do? You, well, what you do is you, um, you love, you appreciate the person who forgave you that. Now, now, here's the thing that we need to understand, okay? What, what, what Jesus is doing here is he's wanting to not tell Simon, Simon, I understand, you've only done a few bad things. So that's why you're not loving me very well. We're going to see that Simon did not love Jesus very well in this scenario. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, you, you've only done a few bad things, and this is why you're not loving me well. He's wanting Simon to see, Simon, you have no idea what kind of debt you're in to God. You have no idea the weight of debt that's there. 
And this is the problem. Simon was blind to it. Now, Jesus had dealt with this before, especially with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. In, in John chapter 9, here's what we read in the situation uh, with a Pharisee. Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. And some of the Pharisees who were standing nearby uh, heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? And Jesus answers, If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. The issue was, and the same thing goes for Simon the Pharisee as the Pharisees that Jesus is referring to in John chapter 9, is that it wasn't that they weren't sinful. It wasn't that they weren't sick. It wasn't that they weren't spiritually in debt. The issue was they refused to see it. Oh, yeah, they could acknowledge maybe they've messed up here or messed up there. They weren't perfect, but, hey, we're the Pharisees. We're the committed ones. Actually, the name Pharisee or the title Pharisee means a separated one. We're separated from the heathen out there, and we're committed to God. We're the ones that people should follow. And Jesus is saying, man, you're blind. You're blind to your own sin. You don't see it. And so after Jesus provokes Simon with this parable, he then really wants to expose Simon. He doesn't just want to provoke him. Hey, think about this, buddy. He actually wants to provoke Simon. This is Jesus loving Simon. He's wanting Simon to see, do you realize this is how, how the weight of your debt? And so look at verse 44. It says, then turning to the woman, Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, you, you, you've made your assumptions about her. You know her reputation, but do you see what she's done? And now he's going to compare her actions to his. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, now in, in, that, in this culture, in this first century culture, when you came to someone's house for a meal or you were invited over, the common courtesy was you would offer them a bowl of water and a clean towel to wash their feet. Because everyone walked around on the dusty, dirty roads with sandals on, and it was uncomfortable and not very pleasant. And so, especially if they're coming over for a meal, you allow them to be refreshed by washing their feet. In fact, often what you would do, if you were wealthy, and a lot of these Pharisees would have been wealthy, is you get your servant to actually wash the feet of the people that come as guests. It's a, it's a common courtesy. It's as common as if you were to come over to my house when COVID was over and, and, and you were to come in, I said, welcome, how are you? And I didn't say, let me put the kettle on and make you a cup of tea. You would go, oh, I guess John doesn't really want me to hang out because that's how all of you British people think. <laughs> I think that way too now after 17 years. Well, this is what we think. It's a common courtesy. If you stop by to visit somebody, even if you're, you plan to say no, there's kind of a common courtesy, isn't there? And you're going to ask, can I get you a cup of tea? And so it, it's the same here. Can I wash your feet? And, and Jesus is saying, look, you didn't even give me this common courtesy, but this woman isn't just washing my feet with water and a, you know, a bowl and a towel, but her own tears. He says, listen, in verse 45, you gave me no kiss, 
But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Again, a very common courtesy when someone comes into your house in that culture in first century. How did you greet them? Kiss on one side, kiss on the other side. You kissed both sides of the cheek. It was a way to say, we're glad you're here. Well, you're welcome. Simon the Pharisee didn't do that to Jesus. But the woman does it even to his feet. He says in verse 46, you do not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, now here's something to understand. When, when someone would uh, invite a guest of honor, like they were going to have a dinner and say, who's the guest of honor? It was also typical to honor that guest of honor by anointing their head with oil. It, again, was a way to be refreshed. It was a, something that was considered to be a way to show that you, you do honor them, that you see them as someone important. And this is kind of what they would do. And so even though Simon invites Jesus as an honored guest, he doesn't actually honor him. But this woman takes an alabaster flask of ointment, something very expensive, very precious. And she, it's not just oil. This is perfumed ointment. And she breaks it open on his feet to anoint him. So Jesus says in this, in wanting to expose Simon's actions by the woman's actions, or Simon's inaction by the woman's actions. Jesus says in verse 47, therefore, I tell you, her sins, notice, which are many, he's not ignoring that, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, listen, this is important, okay? Especially if, if this church stuff is new to you guys who've been watching online with us, if this Jesus stuff is still kind of not quite sunk in, you need to understand this. Jesus is not saying, because she loved me, I will now forgive her. That's not what he's saying. The context will bear this out. What Jesus is saying is, because she knew that she would be forgiven, she knew what she was for, how much she was forgiven of, she responds in this loving worship. That's what she's doing. In other words, he's saying her acts, her works are evidence. They're not payment. They're not atonement. He's not, she's not gaining something. She's not trying to get something. She's trying to beat their acts of gratitude. That's what she's doing. Now, we're going to get into this in a second, but this is what I really want you to think about before we move into the, to the, the story of this woman. We have to ask ourselves, are we like Simon the Pharisee? Are we blind to our own sinfulness? Do we think, yeah, I'm not too bad. I've, I've done pretty well for my life. I'm not that, that bad. I'm not perfect. But... And because we're blind, we don't even recognize, listen, we don't recognize God in the flesh when he's right in front of us. When God's chosen king comes on the scene, having done miracles that only, uh, only God could do, having having fulfilled things that the Messiah, God's chosen king, was predicted to fulfill, and then we still don't recognize him, we still don't honor him. Are we like that? Are we blind like Simon was? See, this is the bad news first, is that the forgiveness is so powerful to change us. God's forgiveness, when we receive it, does change us, but it doesn't benefit us when we're blind to our sin. We don't recognize how much we need it. Maybe think of it this way. If, if I was to, if you were to, to come in uh, to, to this church today and, and I was to say, oh, this is so-and-so, he's a doctor. And you would have thought, oh, that's nice. Good for you, you're a doctor. 
But if I was to say to you, if, 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 you, if you just heard that, you think, well, that's, that's fine. I'm not sick. It's a good, I'm glad he's a doctor. If I am sick, I know who to talk to. But if you had some sort of stage four cancer, and I pray you don't, but if you had that, and I said, let me, let me introduce this person. He, he's head of oncology. He's a, a cancer expert. You would be more interested in meeting him because your need would say, would, would provoke you to, I need to know this person. In a very real sense, when it comes to us spiritually, this is what happens with Jesus. It's until we see our own need that we don't understand why he's so important, how glorious his forgiveness is. So that's the bad news. It doesn't benefit, the power of forgiveness doesn't benefit those who are blind to their sin. But here's the good news. It does benefit whosoever believes. And this is when we get into this woman. Go back to verse 37. In verse 37, here's what, <coughs> here's what it says. <coughs> and behold, there was a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, we don't know what kind of sinner is. Some, some traditions want to say that she was, uh, you know, a common prostitute. And that could be the case, but we don't know for sure. But it says, when she learned that she was reclining, or that he was, Jesus was reclining at the Pharisee's table, she brought this alabaster flask of ointment. Now, now what, what she does is, um, um, she obviously probably uh, walked by Simon's house. Now, think of it this way. In this day, when they would have these dinners, they wouldn't be kind of like in a closed door with, you know, where, where no one knows who's inside your house, you know. This would be an issue where probably they would have this in their big courtyard. Wealthy people would have their dinners in a courtyard. And it was when it was a dinner for a, 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 an important person, where there'd be some kind of question and answering going on or, or some sharing going on, it was very common for people who weren't invited to the feast to kind of lean on the little wall on the patio and listen and even go inside and ask the, the guest of honor questions. And even for some of the poor people, it was common for them to get some of the leftovers and take them home. This is kind of how it worked in this day. So the woman who comes into this feast, the sinful woman who comes into the feast, the problem is not that she's, she's you know, going, coming to the party uninvited. That's not the issue. The issue is that she's a sinful woman. It's the kind of person that she is that they all have a problem with. But when she goes in there, she, she probably sees him at this party. I can imagine her running back home and getting this alabaster flask of perfume. And she comes and she sees Jesus is in this place. And also don't, don't forget too that when they were eat at uh, a meal together, don't think of sitting on chairs around a table. That's not how it worked in the first century. In the first century, they had these maybe 12-inch, these tables that were 12 inches off the ground, pillows all around the table. You'd lean on your left hand with your feet straight out. And so she sees Jesus. She goes to the, to the end of his feet. He's, he's sitting out there. And as she begins to weep, and the idea here, listen, the idea here is not just a few tears trickling down. This is convulsive weeping. This is the kind of weeping when you're overwhelmed with, with emotion. And not necessarily even sadness, just like you can't believe it's finally here. Anybody ever seen the... Uh, 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 the movie Pride and Prejudice. The, the uh, Emma, oh, what's, her, what's the actress's name? No, no, that's, I hate that one. <laughs> no, the other one, the older one. What's her name? She's a famous, what? Emma Thompson, that version. Much better version of Pride and Prejudice. If you've seen that one, do you remember at the end when she finally, uh, when she finally gets together with a guy? What's the guy's name? Who was the guy who like? Come on, you guys know English literature. Help me out here. What? Is it is that Mr. Knightley? Yes. Darcy. No, no, I'm not thinking on Pride and Prejudice. I, I got this all wrong, didn't I? Yes, you have. What's the movie? 
Sense and sensibility, thank you very much. I should know my Jane Austen better. It's embarrassing. Sense and sensibility. And the oldest sister is there, very, very conservative sister, thinks that there's no chance for romance. He comes back. He's not engaged. They can get married. What does she do? Do you remember that, that scene? <laughs> she starts crying like crazy. And I've got to say, that scene makes me cry. Now, everything makes me cry. I know that's true. You guys who know me, that's true. But still, it's a very emotional scene. And it, she's not sad, like, go away. She's overwhelmed with her dream coming true, the fact that she's going to be with the man she wants to be. This is the kind of weeping that the sinful woman is weeping over the feet of Jesus. Overwhelmed that she might know forgiveness for all her sin. Now, now here's the thing we have to understand. She had to believe that Jesus would receive this scandalous worship. Because it was scandalous because of who she was. So she could not have had the guts to go unless she believed that he actually is the one who has the authority to forgive her sins and the one who, who would still accept her even though this worship was a bit scandalous. She would have had to believe that. And what's interesting too, as we saw earlier, is that she was welcoming and honoring Jesus the way Simon should have. Now, now we, we, we go down to verse 48 and what do we see? In verse 48, after Jesus, of course, has exposed Simon's lack of action by her actions, Jesus says to her, remember when he's doing this, he's, when he's exposing Simon, he's looking at her. And, and, and then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, we know that she already was believing this to some degree, or she wouldn't have taken the chance to do the act of worship that she did. But he says this to her because he wants to, he wants to make sure that she's assured that he does indeed have the authority to forgive her sins. I mean, we all love the idea of forgiveness. We all wonder if we actually are forgiven. See, when we, when we actually begin to be honest in our own heart of hearts about the things that we know that God has seen, even if nobody else has, the thoughts that we've had, even if we haven't acted on, on those thoughts, we wished we could. And we, we, when we are honest with ourselves and, and see the vileness of those things, we wonder, could those things actually be forgiven? Or sometimes what, what happens with us, especially those of us who have been Christians for a while and we've tried to walk with God for a while, the longer we walk with God, even the closer that we get to God, the more we see the junk in our hearts. Gosh, I'm just really not that faithful. I feel like I doubt more than I believe. I, I feel like I know what love looks like, but I don't always do it. So often I justify my selfishness, not because I'm desperate for, for something that I need, but just because I just don't, I want to put myself before other people. And we, this is multiplied over and over again in our lives. And then when, in, in, in those honest moments when we've seen that we, we're like this, then we think, gosh, but can forgiveness be real? So think about this sinful woman. 
A woman whose sins weren't secret in her mind or heart, everyone knew how sinful this woman was. And she hears that there's this preacher from Galilee who claims the authority to forgive sin. We reread that, didn't we, just a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus lowers, remember that? Jesus lowers the paralyzed, or not Jesus, sorry, but the four friends lower the paralyzed man, their friend, down, uh, they rip a hole in the roof and they lower him down before Jesus. And Jesus says to the man, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Everyone's like, what? Who can forgive sins but God? That's the right question to ask. Only God can forgive sins. And he does it like that on purpose. And then, of course, he says to prove that he's God and has the authority to forgive sins, what does Jesus do? He says, so you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and walk. And the man's healed like that. And this woman, the sinful woman, probably heard this. And when she walks by this party, this dinner, she sees it's him. The one that has authority to give sins or forgive sins. And she says, I got to go see him. And so Jesus wants to say to her again, look, you need to understand you are forgiven. You can know you are forgiven. And, you know, the Bible doesn't say, but I just picture Jesus looking her right in the eye with a huge smile on his face and saying, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. There's a scripture in in. In the, in the epistle of 1 John, it says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When it says that he, that's God, is faithful, it means he'll do it every time. When it says that he's just, it means, listen, it means that it's right for him to do that. How could it be right for God to just forgive? You guys know a little bit about forgiveness because all of you guys have lived long enough to know what it's like for someone to sin against you. Sometimes they're minor sins, aren't they? Somebody's a bit careless and steps on your foot. Oh, I'm sorry, they say. And of course, polite British people say, no, no, I'm sorry, even though you stepped on my foot. But we say that, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. And we think, no, we can forgive that. It's, it's an accident. It didn't mean to be. But then it gets a little bit more serious. You've asked your neighbor, please don't park on my verge. And again, the neighbor has parked on your verge. And you think, ah. Oh. But you think, okay, I, I don't want to fall out with my neighbor, so I'll just let that one go. But you know, when it gets, the heavier it gets, you find out that your spouse has done a little bit more than flirt with a work colleague. You find out that your child's actually stolen money from you. You find out that you've been mocked and spoken badly against behind your back by your family. And it's a little bit harder to absorb that. We know intuitively, that to forgive is to absorb pain. We know this. We've seen it in our horizontal relationships with each other. In a relationship with God, it's really no different. God has to absorb the sins we've done against him. And, and you need to know this. According to the scripture, this is what David, as in David and Goliath, King David, you know what David said? 
David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And it's in reference when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband killed. It wasn't that he didn't sin against them, but he says, Lord, ultimately I've only sinned, it's, it's you that I've sinned against. You're the bigger, the, the, the biggest offended party. So how does God forgive us? He does so by sending his son to die. See, at this point, this woman wouldn't have understood all that because Jesus hadn't died yet, had he? But she did know he had a reputation of someone who forgave sins, and she knew she needed her sins forgiven. And so she had to believe, okay, if he is the Messiah and he's claiming authority to forgive sins, i got to trust that authority. See, this is what, what the issue is. To, to be a Jesus follower, to believe that Jesus is, as the scripture declares him, Jesus is Lord, the one who's worthy to be trusted with our lives. It begins with saying, okay, you have the authority to forgive, and you've said you are forgiven. It starts there. Now, Jesus doesn't want to leave it there. He wants to encourage her in her faith. Because, of course, we read, when he says this to her, of course, the people there uh, are asking the same question that God asked in, in chapter 5. Those that were at the table, verse 49, who were with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And so he says to the woman, hey, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. <laughs> it's like he wants her to know, listen, I want to commend, specifically commend, the faith that you had that I would forgive your sins. I want to commend you for that by making sure you understand your sins are indeed forgiven. And it's your faith in me that has made that possible, that has made that a reality. So go in peace. This is important because we can easily get this mixed up. She's doing all these good things and Jesus says, okay, well, uh, she's loved much. She's done all these things. Therefore, I'll forgive her. No. She believed she could get forgiveness in Jesus, and then the good works came. Then the worship came. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, that's God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre uh, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's saying your faith to save you, the kind of faith that expresses itself, itself in active worship. That's the faith that saves you. The faith that is, has its object, not the, in the works, but in the Jesus that it's worshiping. So this is the thing that is really important for us to see. That, that the power of forgiveness, it will transform anyone, whosoever will be willing to believe in Jesus can have this forgiveness, can know, can hear Jesus say to them, your sins are forgiven. Now, when we get to this last few verses, just I'm almost done. These last few verses in the first part of chapter 8, it's a bridge between this story of the sinful woman and the parable Jesus is going to talk about next, what we'll talk about next week, the parable of the sower. But, but it's important to recognize what goes on. Jesus, or Luke writes, soon after Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And that phrase, kingdom of God, this is a big overarching term that basically is it's kind of a shorthand way to, to speak of God's plan to restore all things through his chosen king, who's Jesus. 
Jesus is God's chosen king. That's what Messiah or Christ means. It refers to he's God's chosen king. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's this, it's this shorthand for all this whole huge plan. And many of you who've been at church for a while will know this. Maybe some of you, this is new for you. But when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it talks about a reality that, that started when Jesus came, but isn't completed until Jesus comes back. So it's an already but not yet reality. And we'll talk more about this as we go through the gospel, I'm sure. But it's important for us to see that the already part of the kingdom of God is this. You are forgiven. Because the king has come. And he's absorbed our sin on his own, on uh, on himself, on the cross. He can be faithful and just to say, you are forgiven. This is foundational for us. If we can't believe that, that God loves us so much that he wants to forgive our sins so that our sins are not between he and I anymore, so that we can know we have a right relationship with him. If we can't believe that, then we're never going to believe for the kingdom. We're never going to believe for heaven. We're not, not going to look forward to Jesus coming back. But there's something here that is important as well. If you, if you look at the second part <coughs> of verse 1, so he's going around, he's preaching this kingdom of God. The, it's already, he's preaching forgiveness in, in that, of course. And it says in the second part of verse 1, and the 12 were, were with him. That's the 12 apostles that he's already picked. We talked about them in chapter 6, didn't we? Radically different people. I mean, people that you should not put on the same team. You don't want the guy who's trying to overthrow the Roman government on the same team with the guy who works for the Roman government. But Jesus picks these guys and puts them on the same team. Radically diverse people. But also then, uh, Luke writes this in, 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 in verse 2 and 3. He tells us about others who were on Jesus' team. He says, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had, been, uh, had gone out. Now, there's, there was a tradition that started in the 6th century that said that the sinful woman of chapter 7 is Mary Magdalene mentioned here in chapter 8. But there's no reason to believe that from the actual scriptures. It's just a tradition. Probably somebody preached it, sounded really good, and it became popular. Everybody believed it after that. But, but that's not necessarily who this is. And Luke's point, it doesn't seem at all to be to say this is who this is. Luke's point seems to be to say, on Jesus' team were these women, including this woman who was delivered from seven demons. He also names in verse 3, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. In other words, this is someone whose, whose husband was way up there in the king's household, Herod, the, the patriarch or the king of that area. And Susanna, we don't know anything about her or many others who we don't know about. And these work together to provide for Jesus' team, probably practically and financially. Some of these probably had some serious money. Now, the idea of, of women in the first century funding ministry, like, like of, of Jewish preachers, pretty common. But the idea of women being on the team of actually doing that ministry, that didn't happen. Jesus is doing something pretty radical here. Why? Why is Luke telling us this now? Why is he utilizing these women who have themselves diverse background with these men who have diverse background? What's he trying to say? Listen, he's trying to show us that all these diverse men and women have been transformed by God's forgiveness. 
It's changed them to the point that they want to be involved in this work. They want to be those who speak of the kingdoms here. We actually can be in this right relationship with God. Our sins can be forgiven. Their restoration of all things is at hand, and it begins with us and our relationship with God being fully and completely restored. Hallelujah. And he does it with people that the world would never choose. This is what the scripture says. I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Instead, God chose the, the, the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Do you know what qualifies us to be used of God? Not our skills, not our brains, not our positions, not our education, not our personalities. What qualifies us to be used by God in his kingdom, what should motivate us to want to be used by God in his kingdom, is simply forgiveness. We've been forgiven. We've been made right with God through Jesus. But I want to ask you a really important question. How important is it to you to hear the words, your sins are forgiven? Is it as important to you as it would be to hear, breakfast is served? Is that about as excited as you get to hear your sins are forgiven? Is it as important to you as, as someone saying, hey, Norwich City won this week. Miracle of miracles. Because some, some fans would be, yeah, that's kind of exciting. Some non-fans would go, I don't really care. Is it as exciting for you or is it, is it as impactful and important to you as someone saying, here's the winning lottery ticket that you lost? You see, the point is that Jesus said clearly, those who are forgiven much, loved much. So that if we know we need that forgiveness, and God says to us, because of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, your sins are forgiven. What does that do to our hearts? Do we believe that? Yes, Lord. Even my (laughs) struggle to believe is forgiven. Lord, I believe how my unbelief. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. We hope to see you soon.